This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. Hey there, hope you're doing well out there in the land of rock and metal appreciators. Thanks so much for tuning in. On this instalment of the show, I've got quite a treat for you. I've got one of the most recognisable figures in Australian heavy metal. His name is Riley Strong. And he's the front man and guitarist in an outfit from Melbourne called Desecrator. I had a chat to him a few years back, about four years ago or so now. It was a great conversation back then, but it was even better this time around, I must say. The catalyst for the chat is a new album, a stonking new collection of tunes from Desecrator called Summoning. I go through all of the reasons that I highly rate this album throughout the chat, so lest I do it here in the introduction, here he is, Riley Strong from Desecrator. Mate, I can see you've got your cat, cat witch vest up the back there behind you. Nice, nice touch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 that lives on the wall. That's a, a tribute. Oh, you wouldn't remember these things, no doubt, because you've probably done hundreds of interviews since, if not more. But we had a chat in 2017 mm. and uh, we talked a lot about your time in Catwich back then, about what it meant to you. Yeah, um, I do vaguely. I do vaguely remember that, actually. That's uh, one of the rare times it's come up. But, yeah, you know, it was a good time. It was a good time. It was a good training ground and uh, life lessons that I'm sure I talked about and still hold dear. You went through a process that very few people do and I think you're starting to bear the fruits of it right now, which is that, you received guidance and mentorship from someone who gave a shit and someone who really knew what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, that it was a, a very special occurrence. I mean, there's, there's always, there's two parts in every transaction with, um, someone who is, is open-minded enough to receive and to recognize being in the presence of, of some, you know, influential people or um, some passionate people and then, you know, the passionate people who are there and ready to guide young people and it was just that perfect transaction. But mm. um, I think at the end of the day, especially with Australian bands and Australian artists, we're such, um, we're such uh, kind of independently driven, artistically motivated people because we've had to scrounge for everything that we can get and we've had to really exist outside of any mainstream support that um, we end up in quite a, um, a pure space as far as our creativity goes. And I think it's a really special thing that to, to share amongst each other in, in that we are just motivated by the art. We're motivated and inspired by art and driven to share the art with other people and connect with other people because really uh, since um, since the 90s there hasn't been anything else in it so mm. um, because of that I think you do meet some um, some amazing people along the journey. I think the process that I remember you describing to me I mean you can go back and listen to our chat because of course I've got a recording of it I had to so I could write mm. the article that I wrote but um, you yeah. went through a process similar to an internship that someone would go through in a legal firm. See, all that stuff's fairly normal. Being taken under, being, mm. being given guidance by a professional who has years, 
and reams of experience in an industry. Being able to make, and I'm not saying you made mistakes, by the way, but being able to make mistakes under that guidance, someone saying, hey, what'd you learn from that? This sort of thing. Mm. You went through that. And that's my point yeah. about what you went through back then. And of course, what you've been doing since 2010 as well, since the self-titled EP. But mm. I would question whether or not you would have an album that is as strong as what you've got here with Summoning, because it is a world-class album that you've released if you hadn't gone through all of that. Yeah, I think that, that summoning definitely feels like um, it's the culmination of the journey so far for this band and for the musicians uh, in the band. I, I think um, summoning was the first album that I really um, embraced and included uh, the musicians around me. I think um, Desecrated traditionally was very much... Um, uh, my writing space, um, but it came to a point where I think that that everyone, you know, no matter how creative you are, I think you reach a roof of your own your own output, and you can very easily cattlegate yourself um, by needing to control the creative output and siphon it through one person. So summoning was really, I mean, everyone in Desecrate has always had a voice and a voice that's been on record and. Um, and an input towards the songs, but not as much as summoning. Summoning was really a conscious effort for everyone in the band to really um, to really write and contribute. And I know a lot of bands do that, and it's very it's nothing amazing or groundbreaking to speak of. But when you factor in the prolific people that I work with. Um, to bring it all together and to get their input really pushed a maturity into the band and really pushed all of the years of touring, all of the years of struggling and striving um, from everyone's point of view, not just from my point of view, was I think the key. And I think it it has added um, an element to the record that we hadn't been able to capture previously as a genre kind of, boundary pushing uh, element i wouldn't uh say this is by any means another thrash metal record i wouldn't say that it's um that it was even written with genre in mind i think we really committed to um taking on the creative process and writing i think the the phrase we threw around a lot was writing the songs we had in us which also again sounds like something that a lot of bands have done, but I think in summoning it really, it was our time to do that. It was our time to really say, all right, we've been doing this for 10 years. We've done it all over the world. We've done it around and around again, and it's time to now put that all into one record and show people what that means to us, you know, and that's what summoning is. I'm so glad you say that because I guess if I'm talking, speaking directly to the album, I had a bit of a monologue prepared, and what you've just said then leads very nicely up to this, okay, because it is tempting to say that summoning builds on what you've been doing with the group since the release of the self-titled EP in 2010 and indeed through to The Gallows, which is a killer album in 2017. But to your point there, you've actually done far more than that, okay? You've put together all of these experiences you've just speak, spoken about. But the other thing too is as a listener, as a fan of heavy metal, Every once in a while you hear an album that just stands out. It's a quantum leap from things that are happening around it. 
and it's not just from what you've done up to that point. So I'm not just saying this is a quantum leap from To The Gallows. I'm saying that I think it's a quantum leap from a lot of the stuff that's being released at the moment, not just in Australia, but internationally. Because in my view, summoning is, and I agree with you totally, it's not a thrash metal classic. It's a heavy metal classic, the key word, okay? You've managed to capture the spirit but not sound like, and I think I made this point last time with you, four years ago, you were going down this pathway where you've done it, the painkiller feeling, release from agony, pleasure to kill, um, the American way, Agent Orange, master of puppets, the ritual even, and probably the big one for a lot of my listeners, Rain in Blood. Now, I, f- I think this is the album that many metal fans need to hear at this point in time because it's fucking angry and we're not happy for the reasons that we spoke about up top. That aside, though, you must have felt that when you were finished laying the cuts and you'd corrected the mix and you were just about to send it off to be mastered, that you'd nailed it. Did you feel that way? It's funny. We, we're very shy to admit to that kind of stuff. Um, not publicly is one thing, but we're very shy um, to admit to it amongst the group previously uh, because we don't like to oversell to each other what we've done, you know. Um, But I think from the moment the songs were coming together in summoning, even in the rehearsal room phase and the tracking phase, we just felt it got into a space of right and wrong for us. Uh, What's the right thing to play here? What's the wrong thing? It got so black and white so quickly that we knew we were onto something. There was no gray area of, well, do you like that line? What does that line do for you? There was, as a group, it was, are we doing the correct thing right now? And every time we turn left or right, we do it as a group. And it felt like we were really writing something that was, had its own, without having a concept, it created its own theme. It created its own sound. It told us what we needed to write, what was lacking. By the time we had five songs, we knew what the other four were. It just came together. Like I can't explain it any better than that, that this album kind of, I guess it just wrote itself and that's the culmination of the parts. We we were in a an interesting position. We'd just come off um, the bulk of the writing was was done after we'd just come off the European tour with Airborne. And that was a, a really big turning point for us overseas. We'd, we've um, toured with a lot of bands overseas and um, done a lot of stuff in package tours, but we've always been the middle of the road band on package tours. We've always been the clean vocal thrash band amongst more extreme bands. And um, uh, for example, you know, on the Overkill tour, we were playing before Crowbar every night. On the the Venom Inc. tour, we were playing before Vital Remains every night. Um, there's always a more brutal band, and we were the more traditional band. Whereas on the Airborne tour, we were the only support for the the bulk of the shows. And whilst they push the Aussie rock angle to the to the nth degree, what we'd come out and do every night was extreme in comparison. It was faster. It was angrier. Um, and it really resonated. And we got to try a lot of things out. For the first time, I got to see how a larger audience, a more mainstream audience, you Metallica and Slayer patch jacket, but you just got into the big four kind of fan. Um, 
understands about Desecrator and understands about what we do. And that was a really big thing for us. We'd get to see what went over people's heads, what didn't go over people's heads, what made them move, what made them bang their heads. And once you get people in a 2,000-odd capacity, which is the biggest crowds we'd ever touched in our fucking life, so we were over the moon, um, we could really see what was working and what wasn't. And without consciously letting that uh, be a, a springboard for the riding, I guess it just validated a lot of what we do and also told us what maybe we'd done enough, you know, stuff that we were feeling anyway. But once we shared it with people, it was like, you know what, I think we've done that enough in 10 years that I don't want to do that anymore. Or, geez, that went fucking well and, geez, they got it, you know. And those the things came home with us. And once we started to write this record, I guess everything coloured it into what it is. And it feels to me like it's it's a culmination of all of the influences of all of the years leading up to it, you know. So, yeah, it's I think it's unique for us. Uh, I think it still sounds like a desecrated record, but I think it is the record that we needed to release. And I'm I'm quite happy to say uh, on paper out loud that I think it's our album. I think it is the album for yeah, us. Agreed. Yeah, and that's that's not taking anything away from To The Gallows and past efforts, but, yeah, you've arrived. You know, I mean, you're at a point now where, mm. frankly, if you were American, you'd be as big as Trivium. <laughs> It'd be nice. I'd take those crowds. We played with Trivium. They were nice. <laughs> um yeah, that'd be nice, man. Um, I'll tell you what, it's so far um, we've launched two singles. Uh, we launched Summoning and we launched Hate at First Sight. And I think, what are we, we're only a week or so away from the third single and the album dropping together. And um, the response, obviously, it's only online response. Um, at the moment because that's all we can do in the current climate. But um, the response has been massive. Like we've never had this type of uh, viewership, like people watching, people um, playing. You know, you keep a a track of your stats online um, and we've never had this type of reach stats and appreciation. Um, So I guess we feel very encouraged at this point. Um, which is a really cool thing, you know. People seem to be connecting with with what they've heard so far, and um, thankfully for us, people are supporting it. So we feel really excited. I mean, to to touch on the point that you made about it being an angry album and about it being a very well timed album, um, we sat on this album for about a year and a half. Uh, we were due to release Summoning and actually internationally tour Summoning. Um, right when the first wave of COVID hit, we actually had an, a national tour and two international tours to back it up. And we were just about to take off and we're about, all the wheels were in motion and then bang, everything stopped. I mean, again, it's a story you'll hear over and over again from many bands worldwide. And we didn't quite know what to do with it at that point. We were confused and pretty frustrated about the whole thing. It, it shook all of our lives up. We'd been in such a cycle for so many years that the frustration and anger that we felt towards what had been taken away from us was something that kept bouncing back and forth in listening to summoning. And it got to a point where 
we had to make the decision, are we going to hold this off until the world hopefully opens up and we can go back out and traditionally release it and traditionally promote it? Or are, are we going to be a band that says, well, this is the climate and people need music. People need something to connect to. People need something to be excited about. People need something. And we need it. We need something to share with people. We need something to validate the fact that we are musicians, we are artists, and we are sitting on our hands working day jobs trying to remember what we used to do multiple times in a year, you know? So for us to, to release this now and to, to do it independently um, has been a big jump and a big, uh, a big step into the unknown. But at the moment, as I say, it's been validated by the public and I can't, I can't be more appreciative of that. And, um, you know, I've got my fingers crossed. It's going to keep rolling. Yeah, fingers crossed on that one there because that's that's all we've really got at the moment. Mm. But um, you mentioned something in there about it being released independently, indeed. But you are at a level, yeah. but, you, but you are at a level realistically that you could attract Marcus's attention at Nuclear Blast. So, is that potentially that? I mean, I know it's here to talk about summoning, but I mean, this gives mm. you a platform, a very serious platform to start thinking about long long term yeah. future. Well, look, we've. Yeah, we've um, we've talked. We've had many conversations with many labels over the years, as bands do, and especially once you start getting out in the world, and all of a sudden you're not in Australia, trapped on the other side of the earth, and uh, the label reps will come watch your shows, and you meet them, and you all end up at parties together. It all it all gets very localized. Um, so it's not like we're a stranger to the idea, but the the over at the time that we were putting summoning together and, and talking about releasing it, um, there was so much confusion in the music industry and the, the, the replies we were getting from labels at the time and the dialogue that we had uh, was shrouded in such fear and confusion that we had to make the decision, you know, do we want to release this to the people who we think are going to want to hear it and do we want to go this alone or do we want to wait and see if the institutionalised part, the business side of the music industry is going to flatten out? And I I think that um, this is a great time for bands to not, you know, take over from labels or anything like that. We don't need a revolution or a, or a coup. But I think it's a great time for artists to remember that um, – we do have some fantastic tools at our disposal to internationally be heard. And um, I'll tell you what, there's a lot of people with a lot of time on their hands at the moment, so why not spending it promoting your band and releasing your album? Um, I think that going forward, um, you know, we're always open to, to collaboration with labels. Um, we've in the past, we've released through labels, we've distroed through labels and we're, quite excited at the idea of doing it again. We don't currently have European distro for summoning and that's something that we do want to do. But um, at the same time, I like being reminded that um, that we can achieve things, you know, on our own as a group and that Desecrator as a band that's been existing for 12 years has built and maintained itself largely self-managed, self-funded and self-run um, and we're still here. So I think it's a, it's a healthy reminder to, um, 
to remind yourself that you can do these things in-house. I think it's important. Answer this next question in as little or as much detail as you feel comfortable, of course, but how close has Desecrator mm. for you come to being the main gig in terms of the money earner? Uh, look, man, um, Desecrator worked hard to be a band that could um, be nationally viable. Um, Desecrator is still working hard to be internationally viable. Um, it got a lot easier as the tours went on. You know, you you learn along the way. You work out what not to do and what to do and where the pitfalls are and what tolls are going to hurt you the most and where not to book shows because it costs a fortune to get there. And all those things are what make it viable or not. Um, you know, the type of tours you do join and what you can expect to get out of them. You learn those things as you go. Um, you know, what's a good contract and what's a bad contract. But I think that it's hard to answer now because who knows what it's going to be like going forward. I mean, we had some fantastic momentum. We've got, you know, we've got half of our backline in Germany currently sitting in Frankfurt that we stored at the end of that airborne tour thinking we were going to be back to do a mop-up tour in four months. And that's been two and a half or three years or so now. So who knows what it's going to be like in the world. You know, uh, package tour is going to be something that that headliners can sustain because there's going to be such a drive in ticket sales so that there'll be enough in the pot to go around and therefore openers are going to um, see more than they used to. Uh, you know, is it going to get hard and going to have to go back underground and back into the pubs and clubs like it is in Australia overseas, um, making it much harder for a band that's got to fly from the other side of the world with five or six plane seats um, to even get a startup, you know, you don't know. It's a it's a brave new world out there, and it's it's only just forming, I believe. Um, yeah, so we'll see. Look, man, I I have no no intention on um, on encouraging any desecrator member to give up their day job anytime soon. Um, and to be honest, during Corona. Um, I say thank fuck for my day job. If I didn't have a routine right now, if I didn't have a um, something to do during the day that, that wasn't just based in in an art form, I, I reckon I would have lost the plot a while ago. I think that it's um, something that I'm thankful for at this point because I've got something that is outside of music, which is currently struggling. You know, so I think it's not the worst thing to have a multitude of skills right now. You know, with any type of of uh, challenged economy, you've got to go back to to um, to a varied skill set to survive. And I think that's that's relevant now. It might sound extreme, but I think it's relevant. I think having all of your eggs spread across many baskets is the only way to keep your art. Uh, healthy and alive at the moment because you need your head in a, a solid place in order to create. And part of that is financial. Part of that is routine. It's all mixed into it. And I I know crews who are suffering. I know musicians who are suffering. And they're um, usually the ones who were further up the ladder, you know, the ones who um, – could tour all year round, could just release tour, release tour. That's They've lost their main income and they've lost their main lifeline for sanity, mm. you know. So I do 
count myself as lucky that I exist in the halfway house, <laughs> you know, and I think that um, for the first time ever, that's something that I'm quite happy to be, you know. You're still working on your HQs? Of course, absolutely. I'm currently working on how to supercharge one of them. That must be the outlet. Is it outside of music and day, your day job and personal relationships? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I found cars about, uh, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, uh, and um, they've been a healthy way for me to have something that is still organic because I'm using my hands um, besides music, you know, that's not as fickle as music, um, That that's not going to make me on one email and break me on the second email, you know. Uh, <laughs> I learned a few years ago through burnout that um, you need more. You can't live just on the existence of a heavy metal band. It's too... It's too fickle and it's too momentary. Mm. You need a life. You need your cake and to eat it too. And I think that any musician who's passed the the big three O and committed to to staying to staying a musician for the long haul will probably agree with that. You need to welcome a life. You need to welcome, you know, whether it's a partner, whether it's an animal, whether it's a child, whether it's a career. You need to welcome more than just your passion for the the one outlet because life's not two dimensional, you know, and neither's the pitfalls of depression or, or any of the mental health issues that we're now aware that, that artistic people get exposed to through the, the extremes of creating, you know? especially now when you're not able to sort of get out there on the road, which is the true bull pit of a, of a no bullshit heavy metal band. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, we built our name, our whole ethos was just uh, play gigs to people. Everywhere, you name it, you know, you name it, we'll go there and play. That was Desecrator's one mission statement. We will co- collect the crowd one by one, face to face across the world. And we did it for years. It was fantastic. But to take that away is, has been something that we've really had to gr- grow up. You know, you have to grow up, you have to mature, you have to realize, okay, that's not available. There's got to be something else. Otherwise, you won't survive. Mm. Indeed. Hey, just to go back to the conversation that we we're having around what the members contributed to the to the album summoning. Mm. I had a chat to Andrew. Sorry, my my camera will go back on in a sec. There we go. I had a oh, chat yeah. to Andrew Hudson, of course, from Harlot a few years ago, and he struck me as a pretty cool fella. But he's now, of course, in the band. I think he's been in the band yeah. um, unofficially for a while. Now he's officially, apparently, I think, am I correct mm. in saying in the band? So you've effectively got somebody up there who's a comrade in the true sense of the word and that plays the guitar and can sing as well. So what, apart from that, what does he bring to the table? It was such a, an extra string in our bow that, um, that we didn't think we needed, but uh, yeah, has been great along the way. So uh, Muggsy, I've known him. He's a bit younger than us and he's been a, a desecrator front, row fan since he was a kid. I think Harlot are technically an older band than Desecrator, but um, I can remember him down the front of our shows from the very early days. And I think that's one of the key things that um, that really makes him useful to us is that he's got such a different perspective of what Desecrator means. He He saw the band from the outside for so many years 
um, that he's got a totally different opinion of what he thinks works and doesn't work in a way that I could never because I'm too attached to the product and I'm too attached to the band. Add on top of that that he's an amazing songwriter and vocalist in his own right, you know, massively successful in his own right. Um, he was great at fine-tuning my ideas, at grounding my ideas, at occasionally reminding me where I'd come from um, and kind of putting my feet back on the ground with ideas to make sure I didn't stray too far on this record. He's been a really great resource live. Um, we couldn't be happier with the lineup. He um, He's a phenomenal guitar player, but his vocals have really freed me up to do live what I'd always done on records, but never really had a strong enough backup singer to do. So I think it's really added to our live performance. Um, performance wise, you know, he's used to standing in the middle of the stage, but I think he enjoys being off <laughs> to the side. He always, he likes to run the gag that uh, this band, he just gets to turn up, get told where to stand and where to play his <laughs> guitar. And he, he rides it. He, um, Says yes, boss, no boss. Turns up when he's told, leaves after he's done, and he severely enjoys the fact. I think we tell him when to be at the airport. He hops on the plane, he comes along, and doesn't have to worry about anything. And I think that was the key to to him joining, as opposed to just playing with us for a bit, because he did start just mm. filling in for us. Um, is that he got to? I don't know if it was something that he'd done before. Harlot, but he got to enjoy a band from a musician, from a player's point of view, not a, a um, I don't know, uh, a figurehead's point of view, uh, which he obviously is with Harlot. Um, so having him around has been fantastic. We all get along. Um, he's been a, a uh, an invaluable friend of mine over the years. We've many a time we've sat over a, a coffee in a cafe and questioned what the fuck we're doing in heavy metal and then by the end of the conversation made a plan to take over the world. Um, so he's been a fantastic resource for me. So having him by my side in this band has been a time in my life that kind of, uh, I guess, has added extra life into the band in a way that I wouldn't have expected it to happen. And I think honestly that um, lead guitar-wise, because he's on that role of, lead guitar um i feel that the best decision we ever made was to put someone who didn't play lead guitar on lead guitar um it might sound strange but we all agree that our favorite solos or lead lines whatever you want to call them are the ones you can hum the ones you remember yeah. the ones that follow the melody I mean, at the end of the day kids are coming out every two seconds playing faster upside down and backwards than we'll ever play. You know, it's just, it's the way it is generationally. They always, they get faster. They get, they get more crazy with every moment as they come out of high school and sit in their parents' bedroom, you know, but so you can't compete in that market. And I don't think there's any point. I think it's become so intense that after the blinding strobe light on your ears of someone attacking a fretboard, you're kind of getting, numb to it and I think what you're left with is the content of a solo and I know that, that the ones that I can think of off the top of my head are always going to be the ones that I can hum, the ones that I can um, that I can remember the melody of so 
that was what he was particularly good at doing was as a songwriter and a vocalist, he wrote solos as a songwriter and a vocalist, not as a technician. And I think that's something on summoning that um, has really shone through for me. I love all the lead breaks on the album. They really, they're, they're just about my favourite thing except for the bass sound um, to listen to. I think he's done a really fantastic job. So I guess we'll keep him for now. <laughs> just on that. I'm a bassist, and I did notice that your bass game is, is mm. seriously impressive this time around once again. It's part of the – that's what I mean about this album being as fab as what it mm. is, that they're just a no weak links. But truth be told, most metal albums, the bass isn't worth a goddamn, and I'm listening as a bass player and I can't hear a thing. Yeah. I can hear your – your. Uh, it's J- Jared is your bass player, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Jared, yeah. yeah. The, um. We purposefully recorded this album as a rock band would. It doesn't sound like a rock album, but where the instruments sit are very Oz rock uh, aligned. Like the the pyramid of the sound is very clear defined. You know, if you think about a food pyramid, you think about where your drums sit, your bass sits, your rhythm guitars sit, your vocals sit, and how they slightly bleed into each other's areas, but they don't dominate each other's. I think there's a, for me, one of the big shortcomings of heavy metal albums in the past five or six years is that guitars have sonically become everything. Guitars have become so omnipresent in their tone that drums are starting to get tinny. Drums used to be the thing that shook the earth and and held the rock at the bottom, whereas now drums are are getting clicky because they've got no room to sit down the bottom because the fucking guitarist chugs there. And I just think that for me that hamstrings the sonic potential of your band and I think that that for us we really wanted to to tap back into the traditional idea of big live organic drums you know big honest organic in a big loud room drums not punched in not trigger replaced not maximized just big room drums with driving bass to sit with those drums and to make sure that the dynamic of the bass and drums could really be what started you off, you know, be what got you going before you even thought about what a guitar riff was. Because then you've got this perfect space left for the guitars just to be militantly tight, staunch, nasty right-hand guitars, you know. And that, that I guess, has been the desecrated recipe, but... I feel like we've really refined it on this release. And, um, yeah, I'm quite happy with where the bass sits. I know Jerry mm. is too. Look, another point that you, you, you've made there is around that that gnarly tight guitar work that you've got. The only way I can describe it is Hetfield-esque. I mean, given that you are singing and playing mm. at the same time. But, uh, look, I've got, I've got to ask, having done a fair few bit of recording myself, but that must have been a bitch mm. to nail on the recording with how tight it is. Oh, it sucked. Yeah, yeah it sucked. Um, I've got, geez, I've got RSI, I've got tendonitis, I've got carpal tunnel, you name it in my right hand after doing this for years. There's some days I can barely grip a mug. Um, 
But that's, you know, it's it's what it is. We made a decision. I went into the recording and I remember saying uh, before we tra- tracked the guitars that it's just got to get done. You just got to, there's no compromising on guitars at this point. I think that that's something that I really, maybe it's because I'm a guitarist. Maybe it's something that, that a lot of people don't identify with. I'm not sure. But um, I find that we're not, that I can hear that on a good recording. I can hear the fact that someone downpicked that for 16 bars instead of alternate picked it. I can hear that they didn't drop in because I can hear towards the end of the bar, they start to sway the tiny bit and you get a little bit of a feeling of anxiety and urgency that you don't know where it came from, but it's come from the fact that the person's running out of, of all that they had and they wrote the riff until they couldn't play it anymore. And I love that in music. I, I love that. I love that in, in old recordings. I love it in, in the tape era recordings where that's who you had to be. You had to be the performance on the day. So by any means, I'm not saying that I sat and single took the guitars. I'm not at that point anymore. I can't, I, I physically can't do those things um, to that point where I'd subject my body to it. But um we tried as much as we could to get big, broad takes of the guitar tracks to ca- to capture that, to capture what we think creates the urgency in the band. Because a big part of Desecrator is trying to to keep that that slight anxiety and urgency that I think's rooted in the thrash metal genre because it was such a, a fast paced, energy based genre. We've really tried to keep that, even on the tracks that were. Uh, lesser speeds you know because there's still there's still a way to do that and to translate that and that was something that when we were mixing it down i was really happy to hear that it felt slightly fucking staunch and that was what we were going for militant staunch guitars and i mean yeah i grew up like everyone worshiping the altar of, of james hetfield you know and um he was the rule book man you know <laughs> those first four albums that was that was where you went and prayed that that was the rule book so that's it's a really hard technique to shake out of your playing even if you want to you know we're all formed by those young years and idolizing slayer and metallica and you know the bands who made us i've got to ask just this is a complete left-hand turn okay but we're just talking about metallica Mm. but what the hell do you think happened with that group? So they, they went from creating thrash metal masterpieces, literally three, two and two of the two best ever, Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets, mm. Um, mm. and then and Justice for All, flawed but still marvellous, then to Black, which you could sort mm. of excuse in some ways, mm. but they've become the most as big as the Beatles or thereabouts, certainly as big as Led Zeppelin. Mm. Sorry, I'll say as big as mm. Led Zeppelin. I don't think they're as big as the Beatles. Yeah. producing probably the worst music of their career. It's crazy, isn't it? Um, you've got to ask, is it because they've surrounded themselves with the type, the type of people who just indulge them? Like, are they at that point where they're, they've whittled their group down to just people who don't challenge them? Like, do they live in the kind of circles and the type of reality that is so disconnected that they they tr- truly believe they're creating something that that is comparable to their earlier works or do they not care i don't think that's true if they didn't care they wouldn't 
they wouldn't be playing two and a half hour sets mm. every night and doing massive tours. Like they care. They care. You can see it in their faces. They care and they push. I mean, you can say a lot about a Metallica live show these days, but look at any Metallica set list. They're pushing out big shows for this point in their age and career. So they obviously give a fuck. Um, and they go out and they play the songs off their new albums and they they have the looks on their faces, so they must believe it. I just, I don't know, man. I mean, I go further. Like, like I question what what's going on with the new Maiden record. Oh, like, yeah. Surely yeah. it's about time that they got, they called Andy Sneap and said, hey, man, can you come in and do what you did with Priest on mm-hmm. Firepower, please? Like, surely it's time for Steve Harris to go, you know what, someone's got to shake my tree and see yeah. if some fruit falls out because they've been riding by numbers for so long. I mean, it might be argued that they're maybe at a point where they're just releasing for the routine of it. But, um, yeah, I just – I think that that one of the keys to heavy metal as a genre is is struggle. And I don't mean like financial struggle because I think you can find struggle in a lot of things. But I think that you need to be challenged and you need to be be feeling like your back's up against the wall to write to a certain degree, I think. You know, like is there a point where Kirk Hammett spending all these days surfing equaled the pentatonic scales that were the load era onwards? Probably. He seemed to just stop practicing and stop caring mm. at some point. He, he phones it in, you know. Is there a point where Lars's art collection probably outweighed his, his drum practice? Maybe. But at the same time, you know, did Lars ever claim to be the best drummer or the best salesman? You know, you don't know with that guy. And is James's fountain of riffs that were there in the early days, is that going to be indefinite you know it's it's i guess it's a culmination of all those things lead to just albums that are unremarkable man i agree i i still love to love the band i want to love the band i want to support metallica because you know they unwittingly supported me through all my years but um you get to a point where you're just like, I can't back no, that. Absolutely. Not even <laughs> the know? last album, which was just atrocious. I, I was very favourable with my review when it first came Man, out. It was, but... it was, ter- it was terrible. Yeah. They had a couple of good ideas on it. Like they had a couple of of good tangents, you know. There were some some good ideas that I think that, that given the right amount of time and the right amount of pushing, maybe they could have could have kept going. But you've got to say at that point, how much is the producer then just writing the record for mm. them, you know. But – I think since they stopped taking giant left and right turns, I mean, whether you like or hate Load, you can't deny that there's well-written songs on it. Reload, fair enough, it was a mop-up album and everything after that, but at least they were taking giant left and right turns in directions. You go, all right, they believe in that, they're going there. I will either follow them or not or hate it. That's up to me, but they're doing it to the best of their ability. Whereas you kind of now listen to it and go, I don't believe that's the best of your ability. I believe that was the best on the day in between all the other shit that you were doing. You know? So true. And that's that's the so true thing, what you just said then. 
Yeah, you just nailed it, actually. I like talking to people like you because these important bands like Metallica and Maiden that are part of the fabric of our youth, to your points, to many of your points there earlier, and Mm. to talk about Steve Harris too. Like it's like, but the thing is, Steve Steve had been getting it wrong as far back as No Prayer Mm. for the Dying, which is years before Bruce Mm. Bruce left. And then you talk about what he did when he onboarded Blaze, which honestly was just stupid. Mm. Like getting a guy with a blues... Man, poor Blaze. Man, I always feel sorry for yeah, Blaze. Yeah, same, same, yeah. Think about how excited Blaze would have been. Imagine getting that phone call. You're a vocalist, you get a call up to Front Maiden. You're like, this is it. This is it. This is going to be great. Me and my sideburns, we're <laughs> set. And and they just put you in this. What's the first one they released with Blaze? Was it the X Factor? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's the album that they put you with, you know? There's one, I think, Sign of the Cross they carried on and Bruce did when he came back. But apart from that, it's a throwaway album with terrible fucking graphics. Like, oh, the, yeah, the follow-up was shame. even worse. Virtual 11 should should never, ever yeah. have been released. I, I don't even remember it, man. But I think that's the, you know, like, compare it to Slayer. Mm. He's a really good example. I think that Slayer always sounded to me like a band who went in and did the absolute best of what they could to write an album, you know? Um, yeah, Kerry King was probably a, a bit controlling over the songwriting in the end to a point that it got a bit monotonous and, you know, you could argue about the material, but it still sounds like Slayer are doing the best fucking job they can at being Slayer. You know, the, there was no real point. I mean, they went on different tracks and again, you like it or you don't, but there was no point where it felt as half-assed as that last Metallica album, you know? Oh, big time. You just nailed it again. Yeah. Yeah. Slayer. Mm. Uh, Anthrax's last album for all Kings was pretty good. I thought, I thought that was a pretty, I thought that was a reasonably decent album. Although I must say, I thought that uh, John Bush was the singer that they always needed. Um, Oh man, there's been an ongoing conversation in Desecrator for years about, um, getting John Bush to sing for Desecrator. They, the band have been trying to replace me for at least five or six years with John Anyone Bush. as a guest. <laughs> we figure he'll take the phone call. But what else is he doing, you know? Surely he needs some pals to hang out with. We'll, we'll cook him food. We'll look after him. And I'm quite happy to go to being the band's, I don't know, manager. If, uh, if John Bush comes on board, if I'm going to hand the torch of my band to anybody, it may as well be John. Because I think, I totally agree. I think he was the guy like Sound of White Noise is um is off yeah. its fucking head vocally. I just I think he's he's out of control. I think he's way underrated. I love Belladonna. I personally I might be a bit uh like a less popular opinion. I like now Belladonna better than I liked young okay. Belladonna. There's something about the timbre or timber timbre timbre of his voice yeah. now that um that I think the the hoarseness that's in there um. What was the one before that one? Was it Worship, Worship Music? Music, yeah. is that what it was called? Yeah, that was killer. Those songs were off their... They were great. That was, that was to me, that was my favourite Belladonna ever. Uh, I still listen to that album, like, if not weekly, bi-weekly, because I just think that his performance is amazing. But still... I'd take Bush. Did you listen to Belladonna's solo albums when they released? One of them was in 1995, a self-titled affair. Did you ever get your ears around that one? Mm. You'd no. love it. 
if you're a no. fan of that modern, the if you're a fan of that modern yeah. Belladonna sound, he got a he got a mm. he got a groove power like a Pantera style band behind him on those albums and yeah, well, uh, very chunky riffs. Yeah, man, I used to uh, I used to have this war. There there were two rules in Desecrator. Um, this is going back to to early days, live till death type of Desecrator. We had two rules: one, we never print hoodies for merch. Two, no groove. The minute a riff grooved, we delete the <laughs> riff and write straight ahead snare first thrash metal. No groove. Ride the lightning doesn't groove. Desecrator doesn't groove. That was just the rule that we had. Um, now I'm a lot more relaxed, but the word still still makes me twitch, which is strange because I'm a massive Pantera fan. You know, again. Yeah, you, know, you grow up on what you grow up on. You got your own thing going on, and you want to stick to that, and you want to be original to the to the true sound that's within you. That's what you're doing. Yeah, I think back. You just, I think, when you're young, you just make decisions based on fucking nothing. <laughs> so like, I don't even know why we didn't release hoodies. We still, to this day, we haven't released hoodies or trucker caps uh, uh, because we decided. I think at that point, maybe that was a divide in the. You know, back when we were just a, a local band cutting our teeth in Melbourne, I think there was a divide in the crowd between the type of dudes who'd turn up in baggy pants and hoodies and dudes who'd turn up in tight jeans and battle vests. Like there was a bit of a, a changing of the guard from the, the early 2000s death metal crowd to the mid-2000s, you know, thrashes and heavy metal kids that started coming mm-hmm. up. And I think it might have been rooted in that, but I'm not sure. And I think the caps were just... We couldn't risk the idea that someone might flip the cap and start getting us mixed up in the municipal waste crowd. We just couldn't <laughs> couldn't risk it. <laughs> we were not a pizza thrash band, not not for one moment. It's funny. I uh, nothing against pizza thrash bands. Some of my friends are in pizza thrash bands, but <laughs> I say to my I, I interviewed Ryan Waste many years ago, and it was about the time when whatever the album yeah. was called at the time. But there's a it's Slime and Punishment. It is the song Slime and Punishment from the album from the same name. And mm. I often say to the kids whenever they're naughty, I say, "Do you want some Slime and Punishment?" And then they start singing that song. <laughs> they're only six and eight, but they remember. <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> they remember that, you know. Yeah, very good. Yeah. You've um, <laughs> I've spoken to Jeff Jeff Dunn a few times once. Sorry, I've spoken to Jeff Dunn, but it was a classic mm. conversation, mm. and I've had a few conversations with Tony. Tell tell me about that yeah. experience. Um, Mantis and Demolition Man, Jeff Dunn and, and Tony Dolan. Like you couldn't get two better people to um to come into your life. You couldn't get two more grounded um, but grounded and humble but still very um, validated and comfortable in their their part of the timeline of heavy metal. I mean, fuck me. Mantis wrote black metal for fuck's sake. You know, like and Demolition Man, like Primeval Prime is my favourite. Yeah, fantastic, um, yeah. Yeah. Always been my favourite, Venom. Same, um, yeah. So to go, to, to go into that tour um, was – it was a little bit daunting, I guess, because it was a big package. Vital Remains were on it as well. Um, 
Nerva Chaos from Brazil, uh, and Mortuary Drape from Italy. So there are a lot of well-known bands on. I guess we were the wild card on that package, and um, we very quickly buddied up to Venom. That was when uh, Abaddon was playing in Venom Inc. too. So it was, you know, it was all three members of Venom. Um, they were probably on their second or third tour back. Um, and they didn't have any crew on the tour, um, which we thought was was outrageous. We watched Jeff come out one night and set up his own pedals on a packed club and then walk back and then do the walkout with the band. I just couldn't couldn't understand it, couldn't hack it, and just thought, you know what, this dude is like one of the, the absolute pillars of the heavy metal underground. It's just it's unacceptable you know like like he deserves to be on a pedestal i just i believe that that the man is due more respect than that and um so our tech slick and myself we uh we signed up that night to tech for we went i'm pretty sure we just walked into their backstage and said right so tomorrow night we're teching for you um you better tell us about your rigs and from that night on for the rest of the tour jared um Drum tech Abaddon and um, Slick took Tony and I took Jeff. And we had, I think it was 17 or 18 shows with them. Um, and of course, through doing that, there are, you know, the usual calamities of mics going down, guitars going, keeping rigs running. And they were, they were humble enough guys to, to recognize what we were doing and be, be thankful for it, I guess, which is all we ever wanted. We didn't do it for any type of accolade apart from that we um we believe that a band like that should have that type of thing available to them they they obviously have in the past so um yeah but by the end of the tour they got quite on board desecrator as a band which was really nice they um they dug us i guess because we were such a throwback sounding band compared to everyone else on that package they understood our music more than a lot of the other acts on the the uh, the band, they got right behind us, and we kept in contact. Then it wasn't a long period of time before um, we got them talking. I think they were already having vague conversations with um, with Hardline Media, but uh, knowing Doug and Amabel personally, and at the time, Desecrator were booked by the same. European booking agent as Venom Inc. Uh, we we helped to link that up and get them out to Australia. So by the time they came here, um, we were more old friends meeting up than two bands. Um, so that tour was a, a great time as well to take them around Australia and to have them here. I picked them up from the airport in a V8, Kingswood, and they, you know, it was like friends coming home. I, I can't really describe it. I mean, they... From their perspective, it might be different. You know, they've had a million support bands in their life. Um, you know, they've had done more tours than I've eaten hot dinners. But um, for us, meeting them was a standout. We've, you know, we've played with with Techball and we've toured with a lot of bands. We've toured with bigger crowd draw bands than them. But um, those guys in particular were special, and um, they were really appreciative of what we did. That led to that tour. Um, and then a really weird situation came up that I guess 
it's funny. A lot of people don't actually know this happened in in Sydney, but um, December, the December before COVID. So if COVID was in the March or April, that it really yeah, it was two thousand and nineteen. Yeah, the December. Yeah, there you go. Um, Venom were booked to play a, a small club called Frankie's Pizza in Sydney for their annual birthday bash. Um, they were getting flown out for just the one show. And um, four or five days before before the show, uh, Mantis Jeff had a um, an unfortunate uh, event where his partner hurt herself and he couldn't fly out to Australia. So at five days' notice, I got the phone call that uh, Doug was deciding whether he'd cancel it, what he'd do. It was so late notice. But um, Tony uh, Tony said, hey, well, why don't you get the desecrator guys? Why don't you just fly me out and uh, get Jared and Riley to be my band and uh, we'll play a Venom set. We'll just do a classic Venom set in the show and go on. So Jared and I, on no rehearsals, crammed 11 Ve- Venom songs. I, I think... Desecrator had covered black metal once, so I had that half mm. down. Um, but but apart from that, I didn't know a single riff. We Tony flew into Sydney. We got we literally had a, like all kinds of stuff to, to tell you about the calamity of that week. I was working working full time. Had come back from from Adelaide. Had a family member death. Had to do a gig driving a friend. My mate Harry from Airborne was getting married and I was his wedding car, so I did that in Lawn. And then we played a Desecrator show in the festival show in Geelong and then got up the next morning and flew to Sydney, met Tony, rehearsed for five hours during the day, went back to the hotel, got changed, tried to have a nap, was way too fucking nervous for a nap, and then went to the venue and got on stage. It was just like came out of nowhere, whirlwind of a thing, can't even tell you how it happened. Don't have vague memories of what it was like up there. I remember the joint was packed, but that was about it. Um, and we just did our best to run Venom songs the best way we could and make it as lively as we could. And I, um, from what I hear, people enjoyed it. But, yeah, for, for one night and for one moment in time, J- Jared and I got to be Mantis and Abaddon and um, – play all the classics with Tony, the demolition man from Venom. We were Venom Inc. for a night. It was, um, it was a real spin out. It was an amazing time. Um, I remember sitting in the hotel for breakfast with Tony the next morning mm. and just being like, fuck me, did that actually happen? <laughs> was that actually a thing? And he was just, you know, in his, in his UK accent, you know, oh, thanks, boys. It's so nice of you to do it. <laughs> just so so humble and appreciative and it was just a nice hangout with a friend, you know, it was such a nice time. And we spent the day in circular, circular quay <laughs> with uh, Tony and then hopped on a flight back to Melbourne. And I went back to work on the fucking Tuesday. I think it was just, just one of those moments that, that music, you know, it's such a strange game to be part of music and committing to being in a band and committing to traveling the world in a band and giving it all, all of you've got and sacrificing everything for it. There's a lot of 
stuff you could complain about. There's a lot of stuff that it takes away, but it gives you these brief moments in time where you do things that you would have never believed in, things that you would have never thought could happen. Things that definitely when you're watching, you know, early Metallica bootlegs from when they were supporting Venom Mm. on their first tour, on the Kill 'Em All tour, uh, you know, you're like, hang on, I'm filling in for that guy now. You know, it's just these, these beautiful moments where it's all worthwhile. And that was one of them for me. It was something I'll, whilst I find it hard to remember it, um, I'll never forget that it happened. Um, so, yeah, just a little bit of magic along the way. That's one of the best stories to come out of Australian heavy metal right there. That one. It was fun, man. It was fun. It was a really, um, I should include too, like I, I talk about my week as if it was hectic, but I'm pretty sure Jared was in Japan for his day job until the day of the show. So he didn't even have a drum kit for the five days. He had no access to drums until he landed in Sydney. I might be wrong. He might have landed in Melbourne, stayed overnight, and then flown to Sydney the next morning. But but he had no access to drums. And then all of a sudden he's in Sydney on a drum kit in a rehearsal room five hours of playing and then fucking off we go. Oh, and (laughs) the cab ride. So we get in this cab ride where Tony, Jared and I are staying at the hotel and we get in a, uh, Doug booked us a cab to get to the venue. Um, This uh, cab driver turns up mad as a hatter, absolutely mad as a hatter. Um, Not really strong English. Um, his two phrases that he had was he got in, he'd been booked, so he knew where we were going. But if he goes, where are you going? <laughs> and we said, oh, we're going to Frankie's. And then at the time, that song, um, I don't care, yeah. I love yeah. it, uh, that was really popular. So <laughs> his line was, he'd go, where are you going? We'd go, we're going to Frankie's, man. We've told you, go. I don't care. I love it at the top of his lungs. And we were like, what the fuck? <laughs> we're stressed. Jared and I are in the back of the cab, like just thinking like five bars of A, then Phil, then Solo, <laughs> then three count, then, you know, all that like shit's just going through our heads. And old mate's banging the steering wheel. Tony thought it was hilarious because he's, you know, he knows his songs. Um, but the dude, we had no idea if he'd even get us to the venue. So he gets us to the venue. Well, we're ushered in the side door because, you know, there were a few, a few more fans out the front than there would have been at a desecrated show, funnily enough. Um, and I, about 20 minutes later, after I'm in the venue and I've, I've settled down, realised that I left my bag with all my leads, all my pedals and all my stage notes in old crazy mate's cab. And it was 30 minutes before stage time. So my safety net just fell out right from under me, uh, which led to a whole lot of phone calls. Things happened. They found I don't care. I love it. Again, through the taxi company, he came back. I got the pedals, I reckon, maybe five minutes before we were due to to change. Threw them at Slick and said, I can't, man. Just sit up. I need to get drunk right now. And, uh, yeah, they went and played a show. It was, it was hectic. If I think about, the more I think about it, the more I think about how 
unnaturistically hectic the situation was. Usually gigs for us are, re- are really chilled out. We're quite a calm band. We go, we play shows, we have a laugh, we drink too much. It's fun time, you know. This was just off the chart. But, yeah, what a time. Have you seen a recording, like a video recording of your performance? Well, there's a guy, uh, there's a guy in Brisbane. Uh, his name's Wade. Uh, I believe he does a heavy metal show. Actually, I know he does a heavy metal show. No, I believe he does a heavy metal show. He does a good heavy metal show. But um, he was there and he says he's got a video and I said that I don't ever want him to show it to me. <laughs> I never want to see it. Um, I, I played to the absolute peak of what I could at that time and I have no idea whether that was absolutely fucking terrible or perfectly fucking passable. Um, people around me tell me that I did okay, but they might be just being nice. So I never want to know. At the moment in my brain, it's just a beautiful, larger-than-life moment in a long heavy metal history. Dude, it's, it's, it's one of those things that you will never know that you can do these things until you until afterwards, until it's done, to your exact point. Isn't it crazy, man? Isn't it, isn't it crazy what the human mind and body is capable of when put in a position um, to rise to. Like, I really think it is. Like, that That goes across any medium, of course. But I think when you really want something and want to strive for it, it's amazing what you can achieve. For example, you can start a band out of absolutely nothing and 12 years later still be sitting here and talking about it. <laughs> so, you know, it's amazing. You're one of the few... Australian artists that I think if you're ever ready to write a book, your autobiography, just talking about your experiences as a muso, you've actually got the runs on the board to be able to do oh, man, that. I, I would, uh, I wouldn't flatter myself to say that I'd write a captivating book, but um, I reckon I could at least come up with some good short, short stories that, would make people chuckle of um yeah i've got some good ones the there's if you look it up there's enough times i've talked about in interviews about when i met rob halford that was a really interesting story and then i've got another one from whitfield crane of ugly kid joe who's an absolute hero of mine how he entered my life but he lives um, in Mel- he lives in he melbourne never doesn't, doesn't Whit live in melbourne these days he doesn't – I don't think he lives here, but he does like Melbourne a lot, so he did spend a lot of time here pre-COVID. I doubt he's still here. Um, I don't know that for a fact. Um, I know I he was up here I was, because I, I don't know him, but I've interviewed him a bunch of times. And yeah. the last time I interviewed him, he was yeah. one of the places that I'm, I've been – you know, he, we're all from different places. Well, one of mine is Maroochydore. Yeah. He was up on the Sunshine mm. Coast, and I was like, holy shit, that's pretty close to home actually. And, um, yeah, yeah, so yeah. He, I think he might still be in Australia. Who knows? But I know he spent a whole – actually, over the span of the five years I've been doing this, every time I've spoken to him, he's been in Australia. Yeah, he um, he definitely he lives by his own admission. He lives a very transient life. Um, he made a really big deal the night that I met him. Uh, we were playing with DRI, and um, it's it's a semi-known fact that that my favourite vocalist of all time and one of my biggest in- influences vocally, my gateway band was Ugly Kid Joe. I have a massive 
love of that band. Um, they just gr- grade three America's least wanted on cassette led v- very quickly to three, to yeah. uh, Metallica for me, but but without it. That was uh, that was me. That was where it all began. And I, when I was trying to learn to sing in the early desecrated days, when I was working out how if I could do it or if I needed to get a singer in the band, because at the time I was a guitarist who was just trying to be a vocalist, um, I used to to yell along to that cassette and lose my voice so much. I used to, yeah. Those songs really helped me vocal train and taught me what I couldn't do that he can do. But um, uh, that was just after their first tour of of Australia in a lot of years. It was that, not the last one, but the one before um, where they played the Palais in, Palace in Melbourne, the old Palace. And uh, our bass player at the time was their live engineer. He... Um, he Chuck Witt and the guitarist Sonny, who was from the band Snot, if you yeah, remember course. them, but yeah. uh, Sonny was a m- mega nice guy. He um he chucked them on the door of the show without telling me. Uh, so I looked out about a second song in to this packed Bendigo Hotel, which is only like a 250 people room, and Whitfield Crane's standing there <laughs> fucking staring at me singing. <laughs> oh, man. I, um, I've never sung so well with so much attention to the enunciation of my words in my fucking life um yeah it was mega but anyway they sunny and wit ended up hanging out with us for the night and uh they were beautiful dudes it was my birthday so we were all celebrating oh, nice. uh, it was a pretty big night you know play with dri it was my birthday met them sunny was uber cool he grew up in the bay area during the thrash years so he just had heaps to say about all these bands that we idolized like you know bands that we toured with in the early days like forbidden mm. and stuff he was like yeah i was there man you know so he was spun out that there was a band in australia who who knew all this stuff from his younger days but um going back to why I brought that up is that, that Whit was telling me about his transient life and how he kind of floats around and um, he had a backpack with him. And that was his, that was his stuff. That was, his like, this is how I travel, man. I travel light. This is what I'm doing at this stage of my life. And he ended up taking a desecrator shirt that night after making me in mega detail explained to him the meaning behind the shirt because he wasn't just going to put any old heavy metal shirt in his bag he's like it's got to mean something man uh luckily the shirt that that he liked did actually mean something to us it was the it was the cover for a 10 inch that we released called down to hell um and it was a an old albert dura line cutting of the night the night now I'm testing myself. It's called the Night, the Hound, and, and Satan, or something, or something mm-hmm. like that. Going back a few years now, but anyway, I explained the shirt to him. He took the shirt, and then he did his first solo recording with uh, the guitarist. He was working with that. Uh, I can't remember the name of now, but he was working with the guitarist as a duo, and they launched their first film clip maybe three or four months after that. And if you watch that film clip, he's wearing a Desecrator shirt through most of the films Jesus. and that for me to wake up to was another one of those like what's life you know that's a crazy little moment that a, a dude that I had been listening to since grade three had been idolizing had been picturing not only turned out to be an amazing guy who sat and talked to me for three hours that night uh but 
was a dude who saw enough in our music and enough in us that he uh, went, yeah, I'll wear that in my film clip and uh, release that to the world. Dude, the stories keep coming, but there's one story that has, I mean, but look, there's there's one, it's not about final chapters, but it is about the next chapter, yeah. okay? There is a new Mad Max film that is about to be made starring Chris Hemsworth, I believe, okay? Certainly if news media is to be believed, and God knows if they are. But you're it. Let's face it. What other got, band has the credentials? I got it. <laughs> um. I got to correct you. It's not a Mad Max film because I got really excited and thought it was uh, too. So, so I looked into it, but it's uh, more, uh, it is because because old mate's making it. But um, it follows Furiosa, not Max. So the chick who rose as the strong lead in Fury Charlotte's Road. Theron. Yeah. Say chick. I shouldn't Charlotte's say Theron. Yeah, the woman. Yeah, Charles Theron. Uh, I avoided saying her name because I can't say it. Oh, call, call, her, the, call her the chick. It. Don't worry. It's fine, mate. She's a chick. So she's a chick. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, she was that, uh, yeah, strong female lead in, in, in Fury Road. She, um, it followed, apparently it follows her story, not Max's yeah. story, and there is no Max. So <laughs> I thought, I got excited because I thought, is old mate going to play Max? Because that's a good Max. He's an Aussie. Maybe it's a prequel. I got really excited at the idea that, that maybe they were going to do a prequel to Mad Max 1 because they'd done a, an inspired by follow the apocalypse further down the road with Fury Road. So I was really hoping they might go back to just as society's fucking up and the roads are becoming dangerous and maybe why that was all happening could be a prequel. But wishful thinking from a fan, wishful thinking from a fan. But... Uh, yeah, to the, to the point that you touched on, um, I think that uh, if we can be recognised as the soundtrack to the, the post-apocalyptic Mad Max world, then that goal achieved, I'll hang my but hat. But, you know, you know that bit where um, in the movie AI where good old Uncle Al and Ministry play in the flesh fair? Have you seen that film? Mm. Okay, so mm-hmm. Uncle Al and Ministry play as the band in a flesh fair, which is where they rip apart all the androids. Yeah. Okay, you guys yeah. should be able to play something like that, akin to that, but like in a Thunderdome style situation. There, you guys should be the house band for. I did. Look, I'm not going to say that the saxophone in Mad Max Three is a lesser to maybe desecrated <laughs> playing, but if I was. If I was going to – that film doesn't exist really. There is only yeah, two Mad Max. It's a shit film, yeah. there's, there's two Mad Max films and then there's some weird inspired by Hollywood film yeah. that I'll never say it was shit because Tina's ratting it. I mean, Tina Turner, man, what are you talking about? It's the, the grandma of rock and roll. You've got to show her nothing but the utmost respect. Um, but to call it a Mad Max film I think was a stretch. Um, and I think Old Mate with the wall of guitars on wheels was – I don't know. Maybe, maybe young people get what was happening there, but I was a bit like, ah, oh, really, big guy in the apocalypse in the middle of the desert on a bungee cord with a wall of speakers behind him. I oh, know I didn't get it. Again, maybe desecrator on a truck on the back of a truck, much like like playing in Bensdale or something would be. Yeah, you know, that would have suited. That would have been okay. We did write a song on Gallows about Mad Max. It took me a long time to write 
uh, to write that song. Mm. Um, for for years and years, people had always been hassling me to write a song about Mad Max because they know how much of a, a fan I am, and I, I agonised on the lyrics for so long, and then it kind of just passed into obscurity, and <laughs> no one really paid any fucking attention to it. I remember being shattered at the time. I was like, "This is going to be our master of puppets because it's got a big like middle Orion section in it. It has we put so much writing into it, and it just got nothing." I was like, "Oh." All right. You can't predict sometimes. No. You know that guitarist that you're talking about in front of the wall of uh, the wall of Marshalls or whatever they might be yeah. in uh, Fury Road. Yeah. That's Iota, the Sydney musician. Did yeah. you know that? Was Iota. I- you know the guy called, he goes by the pseudonym Iota? Australian yeah. guy, but he doesn't even play rock or but metal. That's yeah, no, that's this it. guy that doesn't even play rock or metal playing rock and metal in front of this thing on a bungee string Bamboo stick, man. It's 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 almost as if they just got in actors for that whole movie. I see. I I I, I don't I I don't like that out movie either because to me one of the unique characteristics of Mad Max, which you guys have identified, is that it's very Australian. Mm. It's quite violent and it's very edgy. Yeah. I think that movie was written to be what it was—a a blockbuster success based on cinematic. Um, Impact, you know. Um, I like that they made all the cars. They didn't use CGI. I like the fact, well, they, they did, obviously, but I like the fact that they made and blew up the majority of the stuff. Like it was yeah. actual real items. I think that translated really well. But I, I choose to see that film as a um, inspired by universe. It's a fan comic, you know. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. There but are I two mean... Mad Max films. There are two pivotal Australian-made, mm-hmm. l- low-budget, high-impact Mad Max films, and they'll be immortal forever. The apparently the XB from the original was found, mm. if not, I think it was found beaten up, beaten the hell up, and then repurposed mm. for Fury Road. It was actually in Fury Road, but heavily modified. So. So I've watched, I've actually got Mad Max 1 and, well, not called Mad Max 1 mm. and 2, but you know what I'm saying, the first two yeah. movies in, in the franchise. And um, mm. they're not all Australian vehicles, as you know. You know, there's... there's no, the, of- um, yeah, there's Chrysler's, there's F-Trucks, there's, there's um, yeah. There's, but they should have uh, gone sheds. with that aesthetic. They should have gone with that aesthetic as well. Yeah, I think so too. Um, that, uh, the one they roll... The coupe they roll and destroy at the end of Mad Max 2 is actually uh, on a property that belongs to a, a friend of mine who runs a museum in Silverton. It's actually a Mad, it's a Mad Max museum. What he's done oh, is yeah, yeah. Up, yeah, up where they filmed it all up there, um, he's c- collected so much stuff. He's got so many of the cars. He found so much of it by just going out, finding the locations where they had the accidents with a metal detector because it never got cleaned up. It's just under layers of red dirt now. Like he still goes out Holy weekly shit. and finds things from the Mad Max films and heaps of that stuff just ended up on farmers' properties locally. So Adrian's a dude from the UK who was a Mad Max nut. He's he's appeared in a lot of articles and stuff for being the only guy in the UK who ever had an Interceptor uh, car built uh and shipped to the UK, but then he relocated his whole family to to Outback Silverton, which is above Broken Hill. It's like there's a pub, an art gallery, and him, and that's it. And he relocated his whole family there because of his 
his obsession for Mad Max. So me and my partner drove up there a couple of years ago to to visit him, and he he couldn't be a cooler guy. It's a, it's a trek that that anyone who's interested in those movies, I would recommend spending the time to go and visit him because he is an amazing guy. He's his personality is infectious and um, his collection of relics will never be seen again. He's actually got the coupe they rolled uh, ended up in a local guy's scrapyard, but not in a, in a way that the guy would give up. He wouldn't give the car up. He liked Hmm. that he had it, but he just left it out in the rain forever and ever and ever. And finally Adrian was able to pry it out of him. I'm not sure if that then was the one that ended up in the movie, but he's got a couple because they trashed about three, I think, over the few movies. Don't quote me on that. There's a few of them, but yeah. Yeah, I knew there was a few. One that, yeah. yeah if, if anyone listening to this is into the movies, check out the Mad Max Museum up in Silverton. Go go visit him. He obviously, he doesn't get a lot of passing traffic, so he only gets people who, who really want to go out and see him. But um I drove 10 hours up to see him and it was well worth it. Is Vernon Wells, I think he's still alive, you know, the Mohawk guy out of uh, the second one, out of uh, the Road Warrior? Uh, I think he is too. Yeah, no, I think you're right because he appears at, at like they have the anniversary uh, meetups at Clunes where they filmed the the um, – the push me shove you scenes in uh, Mad Max One. They have mm. a lot of uh, meetups there from the Mad Max clubs, and I think he still turns up the same as uh, Steve Beasley goes occasionally, and and um, the feral kid who's now normal man. Uh, you know, what's he, what's he now about 40, 45 or for my age or something like uh, that? Is he? he? He's now just bloke man, not feral kid. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, I reckon you could you could potentially get, I mean, you know, I mean, just talking about ideas here, but because there's no other band that's as synonymous with Mad Max as you guys, and uh, getting someone like Vernon to appear in a video, should you ever be inclined to do something like that? Yeah, yeah, for sure, it's a it's a great idea. I'd definitely be having a good time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Uh, which which that's what it's about, isn't it? Just enjoying yourself and finding a way to enjoy the. Enjoy the fuck out of yourself and do it in a way that you can share that enjoyment with people and hopefully they can enjoy that too. No? Mm. Shit, man, isn't it time for census? I was going to say, I better wrap things up. the census form? So as you can go ahead and do your bloody census or drink another beer or just chillax or what have you. It's been a killer chat, dude, though. You know, it's been been even better the second time around, I've got to say, you know. uh, It's been a really nice chat, man. Thank uh, Thank you for instigating it. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Riley Strong from the Melbourne outfit, Desecrated. Do check out that album, Summoning. I truly enjoy it when a musician can go a bit off script and talk about other things outside of the music, such as Mad Max, a topic that Riley and I can clearly riff on about for some time. That was not a bad conversation there about Iron Maiden and Metallica and the relative, how else do you say it, lack of quality from both groups over the past few decades. It's been that long. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith, and I'm the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast series. I appreciate that you've tuned in. If you can like, subscribe, share, even better if you could leave a comment, 
And if you don't want to do any of that, that's fine. I appreciate that you've listened. Until next time, it's goodbye for now.